0: Steve. Hello. So you got in touch with us about these really interesting cases, which are in some ways in the weeds, but they also turn on kind of very important principles about the separation of the military and civilian government.
1: And the dominance of one over the other.
0: Yeah. and and, (laughs) Not just
1: that they're separate, but one is superior.
0: But at the same time, you know, you emailed, I think, you know, what you're saying what all of us were thinking is like the world seems to be falling down. <laughs> and aren't, aren't there aren't there other really important issues we could talk about? Well, you know, with you, uh, you know, Fed courts expert, uh, you know, rule of law expert. Like, so how you're do the we, world span. Yeah, well, how do all these things fit fit together? And 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 I was thinking the other night, we should talk about it all. Um, we shouldn't completely kick to the curb th- this kind of interesting issues of the appointments clause, which seems like a persnickety issue of the uh, involving like a particular statute and the way it fits with the appointments clause. But, but it really is about the rule of law. And like, it's so easy during these times of constitutional, well, I think we're in the midst of a constitutional crisis to ignore the small things and focus on the big things. But it's like, you know, y- y- these the seemingly small things, and as you point out, Joe, it's not really small in a way. Like that's, are these the first to go?
2: I think the cases that I'm involved in are small, but the principle is actually m- maybe one of the most important constitutional principles we have, right? This, the, the notion of civilian preeminence over the military. Um, and separate from you know the, the president's awkward tweet of the day, I mean, we do have a cabinet that is as militarized as any we've really ever seen. I mean, we've got, you know, a recently retired four-star general who's the secretary of defense who needed a special waiver from Congress to get that position. We have a recently retired general who's a secretary of Homeland Security. We have an active duty general who's the national security advisor. Um, so, you know, I guess my, my instinct is that these things are loosely related, but they're not unrelated, right? That there is this sort of, Breakdown of institutional separation, of which the civilian control of the military point is perhaps one of the more nerdy and less obvious, but, you know, but, but, but still very present uh, components.
0: Well, should we just get started on it? I mean, I don't know how much we want to go into, um, uh, you know, other things about which you're interested in terms of the (laughs) the Trump administration, you know, including like the the total fiasco, apparently, in Europe that just occurred. Do do you want to tell us? I mean, maybe let's start with these. Do you want to start with these cases, Joe? Sure. I think that's I think that's good. Just tell us what's going on.
2: I think to to sort of frame the cases I'm involved in uh, uh, appropriately, it'll probably. I'm sorry, Joe.
1: You're the counsel of record on these two. Uh,
2: uh, I am the counsel of record. These are my babies. I am very biased. You should take everything I say with more than the usual grain of salt.
1: Can, can I, by way of preface, before we, he talks about the details of the case, can I? Yeah. Th- there's just some structural stuff that yeah. th- that was news to me in a way that I thought maybe if I shared that with the listeners, then may, it might, because it might be news to them. Okay. Right. And we, so, should
0: a- we should also say up front that these are cases that are pending. Uh, there are cert petitions pending, so we don't know if the court will take these yeah. cases. We will yep. find out in the coming weeks. Yep.
1: So, and and uh, Steve, you you at the end of this, you just correct if, if or stop me in mid course if I make horrible mistakes. But but so my sense from looking at these cases is the the structure right. Um, it it relates to uh, on the one hand courts martial, mm-hmm. uh, so military courts uh, that have a structure whereby. Each service has its own court of appeals. Yep. It sounds like above that there is this court of appeals for the armed forces, which is a discretionary review court. Is that right?
2: For the most part, it's mandatory review in capital
1: cases. Okay, but uh, it's uh, so um, mostly discretionary. One uh, one exception for capital cases, mandatory, Um, and then certiorari can lie from that court to the Supreme Court of the United States. So there, the Supreme Court is atop the pyramid of. These uh, courts marshal, these military courts, uh, that's one route or stream yep. that we're looking at. Yep. Another yep. route is Congress creating the military commission system to deal with people at Guantanamo, and there's a court of military commission review, which is an appellate court within that system. Mm-hmm. And I guess CERT can also lie from there to the Supreme Court of the United States. Is that right? So there's one correction. Oh,
2: no, it's the DC
1: Circuit. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. In 2006, Congress made, and this, I mean, Joe, this is very helpful how you set this up because Congress made a very fateful choice, um, which is for the first time. So military commissions historically were irregular courts, um, were not structured by Congress. The only way of reviewing them was collaterally. Um, whether through a habeas petition or some other kind of collateral relief, Congress makes this choice actually starting in 2005 to bring the military commissions into more of a sort of appellate review structure, Joe, as you say, resembling courts martial. And so Congress in 2006 creates this intermediate appellate court, the Court of Military Commission Review, and then Congress says instead of having this also go To the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, what everybody calls CAF. We're going to have the appeals go to the DC circuit.
1: So the Court of Military Commission Review is analogous to the Court of Appeals for a particular uh, service branch.
2: That's exactly right. And those courts are known as the CCAs, the Courts of Criminal Appeals. Um, And so Congress actually, when it created the CMCR, the Court of Military Commission Review, was largely modeling it on those CCAs. So, um, that so, was the whole idea. Now we should
0: we should say something about what, when you say that the that military commissions had been irregular, you're thinking of like wartime, like you know in in uh, foreign battlefields in World War Two, presumably World War One, setting up structures to try prisoners of war and and things like that, or maybe maybe even deserters. I would
1: think service members. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But well, but you know the irregular combatants. I don't know. Mm. I mean, what what all. Steve, you can you can fill that in, but yeah. the reason that these were that there was this move to regularize w- was not because Congress independently decided, hey, we need to do this. It was because of early Guantanamo cases where a kind of a somewhat irregular ad hoc um, uh, uh, military detention process had begun in Guantanamo with the Guantanamo prisoners, and once I think it was the prob- was it Hamdi that provoked the. The first statute, I'm, I'm getting maybe my, my history mixed up here, but the, you're, you're, it's a Supreme ha- Court Hamdan,
2: Hamdan, but you're on the right track.
0: Well, no, I, I thought it was Hamdi that required, that, that put in place the due process requirement, and that provoked Congress to pass the first statute, which was then reviewed
2: so, in Hamdan. Right. Okay, okay yeah. so Hamdi, yes, Hamdi and Razul in 2004 provoked Congress to pass what's called the Detainee Treatment Act, right? And the Detainee right, Treatment right. Act recognizes these administrative tribunals that had already been underway called CSRT's, Combatant Status Review Tribunals. Um, But Christian, those were meant to be separate from the military commissions. Congress doesn't touch the military commissions in the 2005 statute, other than to provide for appeals for the very first time from some military commission convictions to the D.C. Circuit. And that was only because the 2005 statute otherwise took away all review from Guantanamo.
1: So is that so the C-cert is what goes
2: bust in Hamdan? Uh, so no the c cert goes bust in Bumedian Bumedian that was yeah the the so 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 if we keep I think it's helpful Joe Joe did a really good job of separating out the court martial track from the military commission track also helpful to separate the military detention track at Guantanamo from the military commission track mm. so military detention we're talking about people who were not trying we're just holding and that's where the C-certs are relevant because yep. those are the internal administrative status hearing. That's where habeas is especially relevant because that's the whole fight in the Razul case and then the Boumedian case about whether those guys were entitled to Article Three judicial review. Um, and all of that is happening alongside the military commissions, but not in military commission cases. The big military commission case is Hamdan, where the court says all of this irregular stuff um, exceeds what Congress has authorized. And so, Congress, if you really want these military commissions, you have to go back to the drawing board and actually provide affirmative authorization for them.
1: Okay, so now we've circled back to the question I had reading the materials at a very basic policy level when Congress made the decision that you've already described to say, going from the Court of Military Commission review, instead of going over to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which is the appeals, which is the appellate review from service branch criminal courts of appeals, why send it to the D.C. Circuit? Why not just send it to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces? Would that have violated some other principle to do that?
2: No, 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 Joe, that would have been perfectly legal. And it's it's the exact right question, and it is the source of all of our troubles. Um, (laughs) so, So there are two different theories for why Congress in the Military Commissions Act of 2006 opted for the D.C. Circuit. The first has to do with, once again, going back to the habeas cases. Right, The Congress had already realized that the D.C. District Court and D.C. Circuit were going to exercise a kind of de facto exclusive jurisdiction in those cases, that all the Guantanamo habeas cases were going to the D.C. Circuit. So maybe it made sense to put the military commission cases in the D.C. Circuit as well. I think that's the more um, normatively attractive uh, justification. (laughs) <laughs> the other theory, um, and the one that I actually put somewhat more credence into, is at the time Congress was considering this. Keep in mind, this was the you know D.C. Circuit circa 2006, um, not the D.C. Circuit of today. And I think Congress was quite confident that in the D.C. Circuit circa 2006, they had a pretty conservative court that was going to be very sympathetic to the government. I think Congress was less confident about CAF, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces at that point, because at least at that moment, although it's not true today, three of CAF's five judges were Democratic appointees. Um, And so I actually think that politics had a lot to do with that decision.
0: seems a little bit short-sighted, though. Well— I mean, because these things change. Right or, or, or did they think at the time that they would kind of clear out all of the detainees? Oh I think, no question
2: no, I, I don't think there's any question that everyone that everyone who was involved would have been surprised that in 2017 we'd still be asking these fairly fundamental basic questions. I mean, you know separate from my little cases, I mean, there are also these two big challenges to the military commissions that are also pending now before the Supreme Court on certiorari about whether the commissions can try ordinary domestic offenses. And about whether they can try pre September 11th offenses. Guys, it's 2017, right? We're 15 years into <laughs> yeah. the commissions. We haven't answered these questions yet. So, yeah. So, but we
1: can get to, we've now set up, because we've got the structures yeah. laid out, yep. that there are these. You know, there's, uh, again, Service Branch Court of Appeals, which goes to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, which can get reviewed by the Supreme Court on yep. the one hand, yep. uh, Court of Military Commission Review, which goes to the D.C. Circuit, which can go to the Supreme Court on the other hand. So, so your cases relate to the fact that there are some human beings <laughs> who have been asked to serve as judges on both the Court of, uh, the Court of Military Commission Review and uh, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces.
2: Uh, so almost, there's one, Joe, one one side catch. It's not, so our cases are about people who are serving on both the CMCR and the Courts of Criminal Appeals, right? So the intermediate oh, yeah, right, right. So, uh Right, so the, the truly analogous uh, levels. Right, and, it, and so from a, com- I mean, and one of, the, one of the things the government argues is, listen, when Congress created the Court of Military Commission Review, who the hell else was it going to find to be the judges, but judges from its sister court, right? From the Courts of Criminal Appeals, from the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, the Army Court of Criminal Appeals, right, that's exactly who they had in mind because it's the exact kind of court they wanted to set up. And so what Congress does in 2006 is Congress says, we're going to staff the Court of Military Commission review with appellate military judges who can be assigned from the CCAs to the CMCR, right? So the Secretary of Defense can say, hey, Colonel Smith, you are currently a judge on the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. We're going to give you some extra work as a judge on the Court of Military Commission Review because it's a very similar function. You now have a new job. An yeah.
1: additional job. You've got your military job yes. and your military court job, but you're going to have this other job, that's right. which is the uh, Court of Military Commission Review. And, and it's probably not going to be, like, it's not going to handle as much stuff. And so it's that's another reason why it might make sense to detail someone with this additional responsibility. Exactly, um, Not going to take up all their time. Uh, it's more efficient. Uh, so why is it a problem to say to the defense secretary, go ahead and send some people and, over and, to that other
0: court? You know, I mean, within Article 3, judges sometimes sit on other circuits by yeah. designation. Yeah, you sure. can get district judges sitting on circuit courts. You can get circuit judges sitting on deciding courts. to sit on trial courts. Yeah. So it's not Happens as though in Article 3 this doesn't happen. Yeah.
1: And the Court of Military Commission Review, uh, and, and maybe this is a plus, maybe this is a minus, it's not as if the work of that court isn't subject to review. Indeed. It is at the D.C. Circuit now. Maybe that's a problem because that's civilian, not military. Well, so that's,
2: so, so. This is where this is where we start running into problems. So um, I, I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago if, for the folks who are still paying attention, um, right? That that the 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 real problem came when Congress gave the D.C. Circuit appellate jurisdiction over the CMCR. So the appointments clause, right? Article II's appointments clause draws this distinction, this Delphic distinction right, between principal officers and inferior officers. Um, The Supreme Court has never really articulated a bright line rule for what is the difference between a principal officer and inferior officer. But it's been rather clear that if you are a principal officer, um, there are very special rules about how you can be hired and fired, right? that you Basically, there's very little Congress can do if you're a principal executive branch officer to take away control of your position from the president.
0: They also have to consent to your appointment. Indeed, right. I mean, that's, so, that's, the, that's, the, that's the major distinction, right?
2: That's right. So, so uh, if you're a principal officer, you have to be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate to the position, and presumably you can usually only be removed um, at, the pre- at the president's pleasure. Um, that's the sort of Myers versus U.S. old school appointments clause thing. All right. There's a 1996 Supreme Court case called Edmund versus United States where the court holds unanimously, um, in this opinion by Justice Scalia, that the CCA judges, right, those intermediate appellate court-martial judges, are inferior executive branch officers. Therefore, it's okay that um, they're oftentimes selected not by the president, but by the secretary of defense or the judge advocate general of the relevant service branch. Um, and part of why the court in Edmund says that the CCA judges are inferior officers is because of CAF, right? Because they're subject to appellate review by another court, Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, that is located for administrative purposes in the executive branch. Um, so Edmond suggests, right, that CCA judges are inferior officers. Well, it holds that. but suggests that that's so because of the structure that Joe set out, right, because there's this uh, appellate court that's within the executive branch that sits over them. So they are not the last word of the executive branch on the matters before them. Well, now contrast that with the CMCR, right? The CMCR is not right. um, overseen by another court within the executive branch. Appeals from the CMCR go directly to the Article Three D.C. Circuit. So there's a pretty darn good argument that even though they look a lot alike and even though they were designed to mirror each other, CMCR judges are actually principal executive branch officers and therefore have to be appointed through the presidential nomination and Senate advice and consent procedure.
0: Can I try, can I try to restate just a little bit? Please. Um, just, just to clear my own mind. Yeah. Uh, so, so if if your theory is that a principal officer of the executive branch is someone who has the authority to speak finally for the executive branch you know to to uh, has some discretion to make some kind of policy choice like that 's the key whereas you know if if you have a boss in the executive branch like you can make recommendations to your boss like maybe maybe you 're an under secretary or something like that and the Um, although those are also, I guess, principal officers. I I want to think about that. Well, Congress has
1: the discretion. Congress can
0: set up an inferior
1: officer that it wants to confirm to have some role in their selection, but that seems
0: to me a different matter. As to what's constitutionally required. Correct. Or forbidden, If you think (laughs) that the term officers, because it doesn't use the term principal officers, but it uses the term inferior officers in the constitutional text, I think. That's right. And so if you think that that term officer as distinct from an inferior officer, means someone who can kind of speak for or make a decision for the executive branch, then the fact that we have this court whose decision, by law, cannot be overturned by any other executive official but only by an Article Three court uh, implies that all of these judges are in fact officers within the meaning of the Constitution, principal officers, and therefore all of the the appointments process, which applies to principal officers must apply to these officers
1: that's i mean that's the, seems, yeah that's the basic article sorry
2: Jeff.
1: it it makes sense i think it, if you step back and take it out of this highly specialized area but just as a sort of general matter right you've got uh, the executive branch you know the president is at the head of it at the um, as the constitution contemplates at least on its on its face the uh, president's at the head of this executive branch but there's a lot of things that happen uh, with many different people Engaged in many different activities uh, within the executive branch, and and you could imagine, like Christian, as you said before, you could imagine one person who works in a cabinet department saying, "Here's my recommendation to you, my superior," and there's two or three other people between you, uh, between me, excuse me, and the Secretary of the Treasury, right? And within Treasury, different recommendations get made, different considerations get considered. Eventually, at some point, it's going to bounce up against the outside world where either the treasury secretary or his uh, the person to whom he's delegated his role in this is going to say okay here's what we're going to do right here's the new way to handle this particular feature of banking uh okay great uh <laughs> now someone who objects to that just using general administrative law principles could say okay now that i know what the final Word is from the executive, I can now go to the judiciary and say, Is that cricket? Right? Does that pass muster with statutes, with the constitution? With all so, if you're thinking about just how to get this all this machinery to operate,
0: yeah, I I think that you, I first of all, I think you said, Is that cricket? Which is interesting to me, (laughs) okay. Um, but uh, um, but but separately, like you you know, in in some sense, like there there are a lot of executive branch um, employees. Who make decisions that bump up against the outside world? Sure, but, but what's going on, right? So if I'm an in, you know, a truly inferior employee, several layers, several layers down in the hierarchy, and I make some decision, th- kind of the the. In- What's implicit in that is that I have some bosses who could step in and say, no, 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 you got that wrong. And they could stop the whole thing or I could be fired or, right. you know. But, I was just but, trying to use right. Steve's principle yeah. from
1: the Edmonton well, uh, Edmonton yeah, 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 case. Yeah, no, I,
0: I say that because it, it, it runs up against a potential argument you could have, right? That if you really believe in a truly unitary executive, then there is no official. Who isn't just like the underling that I just described, right? Because the the president all could roads come, lead to the president. All roads lead to the president. And if you take that view, if you take that very strong unitary executive view, then you might say an officer is just someone that the, that the Congress designates as an officer. Right, that, that that there is no principle of the kind that we describe that implies that someone must be an officer. But then, Christian, right? because, but,
2: by that logic, yeah. by that logic, then presumably all 4 cause, removal, restraints are unconstitutional. Uh, no, absolutely.
0: I, I mean that that because I mean that's part and parcel with the with the very strong unitary executive theory. Yep. Now, it's not my theory. I don't have that theory. Right. I, I, partly, well, for lots of reasons. But
1: <laughs> so, Christian, your your suggestion uh, that uh, you could you could say. In, in the sense, the Treasury Secretary, every bit as much as the person five layers down within Treasury, is subject to the review and approval or removal by the President of the United States. Therefore, he's no different or she's no different from that person five layers down within Treasury. But Take that analogy or take that uh, observation and ask, What is that? does that mean the constitutional text is harder to understand? Because it seems to contemplate that. There would be both kinds of officers right. within the executive branch, right. which sounds like it's a little bit in tension with what you just said. The constitutional text itself, what it imagines will happen, isn't what you just said, or or, or is hard to square with you what you just said. Is that right?
0: Well, I I, I think if you t- if you take the unitary principle as far as it will go, it suggests that you know an officer is. You might look just originally and look at just like cabinet secretaries. Maybe that's all that it means, right? Um, uh, but it also uses other phrases, so it's a little bit difficult. You might get very originalist with it, identify a list, right? Rather than, rather than using a principle which would imply that someone is an officer, right? Which is what Steve's argument, I think, turns on, right? This, this principle of a, a final point of discretion. Well, so, right? so, so it,
2: can kind of catch up? It actually, yeah. I, I, at the risk of ruining this really awesome conversation, the, the case actually, ironically, <laughs> doesn't turn on this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Which case doesn't turn out?
2: Um, our cases, right? Our,
1: our military judge cases. It,
2: it, oh, I know that.
1: We're just trying to get to the bigger issues.
2: No, no. I, believe me, I get it. And, and, but I think it's worth <laughs> stressing. Like, there's a really interesting appointments clause problem here that is compounded by the lack of clarity in the Supreme Court's own doctrine about exactly where the line is between principal and inferior officers for exactly the reasons you guys are explaining.
0: Right.
1: And I'm reminded in this discussion of the Appointments Clause and the observation Christian just made about it, one one place to go if you've reached the conclusion that, be, given that everyone is subject to presidential removal on a certain point of view, a certain point of view about the unitary executive, um, the, the, the Appointments Clause is a truism. That's right. It, much like some people think the Tenth Amendment is a truism vis-a-vis state power and and Garcia and blah, 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 right? That you're saying, look, Congress... It's basically not an instruction about to the courts or to the president. It's an instruction to Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, you can create certain kinds of officers of either of these two varieties, and it's up to you to decide how you want to approach that, right? And, and so there's very little work for courts to do in monitoring the line between officer and inferior officer fr- yeah. uh, from that perspective. I mean,
0: I guess there could be some other principle which doesn't rely on this idea of a final point of discretion, Sure. which is historically generated or has to do with importance and is just standard like, but right. Um, so that's possible, I guess. And but,
1: maybe you, maybe that one is is like the the case from a few years ago about recesses and the recess appointments issue. No Canning. And, yeah, and you look to settlement of his by the, you know reach through historical practice, right? And how what is that? What light does that shed? But but w- I took Steve to be describing that Scalia opinion in was it Edmonds? Edmund, yeah, Edmonds. Yeah, Edmonds. That uh that takes a very different approach, right? And it right. tries to give a criterion that, it, that you wouldn't need to look to history. You, it's a much more analytical criterion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right, uh, that's
2: right. And, and so then the question becomes, right, so, so what do you do with all this? So what's interesting is the first branch that responded to all of this was Congress. Um, so Congress basically rewrites the Military Commissions Act in 2009 and creates a second mechanism for putting judges on the CMCR. So it keeps the existing, you can assign military officers who are serving as CCA judges mechanism, but it also says, and you can have, quote, additional judges, unquote, who are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, right? So now under the MCA, circa 2009, there are two mechanisms for putting judges on the CMCR, one of which is oblivious to their status, because whether they're principal or inferior, presidential nomination and Senate confirmation is valid, right? Um, And the other of which raises a serious appointments clause problem.
0: So if there's a split on the court and a majority are all non-Senate confirmed, you you get the appointments clause question squarely raised.
2: Or even if you didn't. I mean, I actually think, Christian, there's pretty good precedent that even having one unqualified judge on a panel, um, even if the court otherwise has a quorum, is enough yeah, to just, avoid the conduct oh, yeah. of that court. It's a structural it's a structural it, error in that. So like, like right? you like could possibly of, un,
1: you couldn't unwind it, the causation of what did the person's presence there actually mean. Yeah this is like this
0: replicates is. the conflict of interest type cases, exactly. right? Where it's like, you know, yeah, you, you just, just gotta, gotta shut it down. Right. I mean it, so well you get arguments on both sides. So but anyway it doesn't your your case doesn't turn on this.
2: So so this is where things get weird. Okay, so um, oh, this uh, is if, where yeah, well, you know, <laughs> we're, this is where we're, we're, we're if if people have been following along so far, that uh, we're about to really mess with them. <laughs> so it takes a couple of years, partly because of how long these cases take to get up to the appellate court. But starting around 2013 or 2014, some of the defendants in the military commissions start making this argument um, before the CMCR um, that in fact the CMCR is um, wrongly constituted because at least most of the judges at that point had been assigned to the court, not appointed to it, um, and that, that violated the Appointments Clause. Um, the CMCR rejects that argument, and this leads to a petition for writ of mandamus by Nishiri um, in the D.C. Circuit. And the D.C. Circuit issues this remarkable opinion in 2015 Written by Judge Karen Henderson, who is no friend of the detainees, where she says, Listen, we have jurisdiction to issue writ of mandatements to the military commissions. The government had actually contested that, as had Judge Kavanaugh. Um, we have jurisdiction. In an appropriate case, we can do it. We don't think this is an appropriate case because the appointments clause question is an open one, right? So you haven't shown that your right to relief is clear and indisputable. But, mm. but she says, Dear government, you should fix this. <laughs> um, there's this remarkable passage at the end where she says, you know, the political branches have the power to make this appointments clause problem go away. Um, and she points to the new provision for appointing judges to the CMCR and basically says, hey, political branches, you can make this problem go away. If you just appoint all of the judges to the CMCR, then there can't be an appointments clause objection. Um, and that's exactly what the political branches do.
1: So let me make sure I understand. So yeah. now we move from, because of the uh, Nashiri case, uh, rejecting the mandamus petition, we move to a situation where the political branches say, oh, shoot, we shouldn't have mm-hmm. the CMCR made up of a mix of people, some of whom were Senate confirmed, some not. Let's just have the president appoint and the Senate confirm all of them.
2: Exactly right. And that, Joe, that's exactly what happened. So in March of 2016, President Obama formally nominates Um, all of the sort of then-serving CMCR judges who had previously been assigned, and in April, the Senate confirms them, right? So in response to this sort of appointments clause question, right, but not answer, Congress and the president put all of the judges in there um, as additional judges who are nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate.
1: And now I think we finally get to your problem right? exactly. which is to the degree that any of them were had been detailed over as an as an initial matter right recall dear listener that we said well you could take some of those criminal courts of appeals from the service branches people and and the secretary of defense could detail them over to the CMCR because it's the same kind of court same kind of job blah 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 right and that means you could be in a situation sounds like we are in one where uh, an active duty military officer is serving as
0: a CMCR judge, having been appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. As, an, as potentially an officer of the United States, Correct. a civilian officer of the United States. And, right. and so this whole history has led to basically a Steve Vladek-Pincer move Right. It's like the 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 the, the Fed courts, people who are sympathetic with the people in Guantanamo are, uh, you know, are, are, you know, keep nipping at the heels of this, you know, you know, continuously jury rigged procedure.
1: Uh, uh, friendly amendment, okay. uh, the people who are sympathetic to the rule of law and <laughs> realize that the people in Guantanamo have real rule of law Look, claims to make about
0: what we're doing and how we're doing you, it. You know you're not going to find an argument for me right. on that, right? No, no, I, no, I, no, but I'm, I'm
1: but, just trying but, to— like, I don't want like, anyone to misunderstand the force of your I should, observation. I,
2: yeah. I mean, there's a, lo- there's a larger story here about the CMCR that, I mean, you know, why am I interested in this issue besides the brilliant legal nerdistry of it? Um, It's because, you know, the CMCR is this remarkable um, failure, right, as an institution. I mean, Congress creates this intermediate appellate court. Um, It's accomplished nothing in its 11 years of existence other than slowing things down. It's been reversed by the D.C. Circuit over and over again, sometimes under plain error review. Um, So I wrote a post for Lawfare a couple of years ago called the Misbegotten Court of Military Commission Review. This is just, I think, another example of that, right, that, you know, Congress— usually when it creates a new court, is a lot more careful and thinks through all of these, you know, multidimensional chess moves much better than it did in this case.
1: Can I, I've got a, an out of left field question that, that you just made me think of, and I can't help but ask it. I Maybe, wonder if it's mine. I have Christian, one too. Go w- go no, I guarantee you it's not. Uh, <laughs> and you might want to edit this one out. Uh, but, but I can't help asking a, a, a leading federal courts person this question. So my recollection is... So why are you asking me? There w- <laughs> yeah, there was another failed uh, court of appeals, the Temporary Emergency Court of uh, Appeals. Uh, who uh, and I used to hear people refer to it as TICA, right? Yep. Um, do you know you know of this court? Uh, I do, although
2: not as well as I know the CMCR.
1: Okay, but but it's it, it was uh, and it was uh, relating to things like price controls yep, and other economic regulation. Uh, so, and my recollection is people viewed this thing as as a huge failure. Yep. Um, in, in part because it had this hornet's nest of of piecemeal appeals carving cases out into going to TICA for some issues and going to other courts of appeals yeah. for other issues. Yeah. Um, so there are other historical examples, maybe raising much less momentous questions about the civilian control of the military and other similarly weighty subjects, right? Um, but, but Congress does, from time to time, sort of screw the pooch when it comes to setting up these courts of appeal structures. Oh, I think you were exactly right. right. You were right. That, that was not my
0: question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 Joe, I mean, before, before we get to Christian's question, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and to me, like, whatever you think of the military commissions, whatever you think of the actual substantive legal questions raised by all these cases, there's an institutional design lesson here about the CMCR that Congress failed miserably. Um, yep. Right. And that and that, if you know, from a pure sort of apolitical, non-substantive Fed courts lens, that might be the most interesting piece here. Right. Which is, hey, Congress, you know, you can't put together a new court system overnight um, and without actually asking people who know what they're doing how to do it.
0: Yeah, it was, and that's a very important lesson. Well, so, so my question was, does all of this go away if if Congress takes away Senate confirmation and presidential appointment? and 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 make and and changes it so that the appeals don't go to the DC circuit but go to the court of appeals for the armed forces and with ultimate supreme court review doesn't uh now, now maybe there are other due process challenges about keeping it all, keeping the bulk of the litigation within the military but i can think of just some pragmatic concerns like at least this structure maybe gets more Increases the number of layers of Article Three review, yeah. so, and maybe it yeah. gets more clo- closer attention because the Supreme Court maybe can't handle all. The- maybe it can because there aren't that many. But what do you think?
2: No, no, no. I mean, listen. I, I, I want to be clear. I actually think there are salutary effects of putting the D.C. Circuit atop the military commission system. Um, and Christian, you just hit the most important one, which is mandatory de novo review in an Article Three court in all cases. That's not true in the court-martial system, right? I mean, CAF is a discretionary court, and the Supreme Court usually does not have cert jurisdiction in cases where CAF denies permission to bring an appeal. So I actually think there's a value to have on the no, DC no, that, that's,
0: that's statutory, though, right, Steve?
2: That's statutory. That's right.
0: So, so um, I would think that in the case of a detainee, that might be unconstitutional as applied.
2: Um, maybe, although then we'd have to have a longer conversation about Section 14 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 and the Supreme Court's original habeas jurisdiction, right, which would, I think, allow the Supreme Court to hear a sort of tantamount to an appeal as exactly. an original habeas writ. Um, right. but, but, but before we get all the way into those weeds, um, <laughs> I, I, listen, I do think there are any number of places along this you know, railroad track where Congress could have fixed things. But they did one really important thing in 2009 that makes at least some of this irrevocable. Um, When they tried to fix part of the problem with the CMCR in 2009, they made it an Article I court of record. Um, And that's, you know, a really sort of specific legal term, but they actually thereby distinguished it from the CCAs, right? They really destroyed the analogy to the CCAs in 2009 because they made the CMCR a sort of permanent standing institution, much more like CAF, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, um, and therefore I think much harder to manipulate through subsequent statutes. Hmm. So, you know, I think Christian, they certainly could have solved this before that point. I'm not sure once they got to that point that they weren't, you know, at least somehow screwed. Hmm.
1: And at least as to the installed base of the, of the, your clients, Ortiz and the and the other case, yeah. uh, raising that that's not within the military commission thing at all. That's within the that's within the courts martial system.
2: So, right. That, for them, it wouldn't solve anything
1: because their proceedings been effective.
2: That's right. So so let's so maybe this is a good chance to introduce folks to the real sort of um, what Kristen called the pincer move, right? Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Right. The, the, the dual office holding statute. President Obama puts all of the sort of CMCR judges back on the CMCR as appointed judges. And everyone thinks the appointments clause problem is settled. What folks had not realized is that there's this Civil War era statute um, that's codified today at 10 USC section 973B um, that forbids active duty military officers from holding civil offices in the federal government that, among other things, require, wait for it, right, presidential nomination and Senate confirmation. Um, And so the whole sort of thing, in theory, starts crashing down the moment that President Obama takes these active-duty military officers and appoints them to the CMCR to a job that, at least by statute, now requires presidential uh, presidential nomination and Senate confirmation, at least, as that statute had been interpreted up to that point, that moment should have immediately terminated those military officers' military service, which would therefore have precluded them from continuing to serve on the court martial courts of criminal appeals. Right, so that's where my cases come from. Wow, fourteen layers in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so um, as I read the papers in terms of the uh, the court of appeals to the armed forces, opinions, especially in Ortiz, which goes into, it seems to me, in more detail. Yeah, they um, love this argument. Th- yeah, that, that um, the notion that uh, you could have... <sighs> so hard to figure out how to get one's mental hooks into this if, you, if you're not as steeped in it as you clearly are, that, that thinking about, all right, so you've got this person uh, who's working in both of these locations. A a, a criminal court of appeals for the armed forces, and um, one of the lower ones, and the court of military commission review, Mm -hmm. Um, and and this statute from the Civil War era originally says you can't be in both these places at once. Uh, You can't have both these kind of jobs: a civilian job and a military job. Doesn't the statute also try to say something about um, if 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 you should find yourself in a situation where you're in both of these jobs at once? Uh, we're not going to nullify all of what you did in both jobs. So this is, right. We're, we're going to try to preserve your military role and not your civilian role. Did I, do I have that backwards?
2: You have that, you had that right. Now, now I should add some layers here just to sort of flesh this out. So the statute as originally written um, was actually quite clear so that that was not the case, right? So prior to 1983, if the statute was triggered, that is to say, if an active duty military officer was appointed to this second civil office. And if Congress had not authorized specifically that appointment, because Congress can override this rule by a statute, um, sure. then the statute said you are terminated from the military, and all the stuff you do subsequent to your appointment in the military can be voided. Right? So at least before 1983, the rule was actually otherwise. So before 1983, I think there was no question that our theory is correct. Right? That is to say that the moment these active duty military officers are appointed to the CMCR, um, their military commissions expire. And any subsequent acts they take as a military officer cannot be salvaged by the de facto officer doctrine.
1: And, and that strikes me, the, the, the pre-1983 policy, that strikes me as, a, as uh, exceptionally foolish. Uh, the notion that you would void all their military orders uh, that they may have issued uh, from the day they ha- were in this other civil office. You have to do something to preserve some safe harbor to preserve what they did in the interim period.
2: Maybe. Although, I mean, Joe, it's worth saying that in some respects, that is simply a codification of what was known as the common law doctrine of incompatibility. Um, so the common law actually had a very sophisticated incompatibility rule, which basically provided that an appointment to a second office not only uh, immediately terminates the first incompatible office, but also voids all subsequent conduct. So it may be foolish, Joe, I guess my point is just that was the common law rule too and not just the one in the statute.
0: You know, one basic question people might have is why the later passed statute doesn't control. And if if the later passed statute intended to make these things legal, why it doesn't just work? And I think there's an explanation because the earlier statute contemplates later passed statutes and says you gotta do it explicitly, et cetera, et cetera. Now this would land the earl- the earlier statute into the category that I've called submarine statutes in, mm-hmm. in a recent piece, right? Which which suggests that there there's kind of a there's a there's a problem with these earlier statutes to the extent that they are unexpected, um, that they kind of disrupt the intentions, uh, the kind of what I call the present intentions of later congresses, mm-hmm. which we should care about, even if you aren't an intentionalist originalist, which I sure. which I'm not. And so this strikes me as 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 almost a quintessential submarine statute, but one that you might not expect to strike all that often because Congress doesn't. I don't know how often it deals with these appointments issue. I mean, this is maybe one of the first times that this particular conflict has come up. But then you point to and you the the fact that this is a codification of a of a of an important common law rule. And and you know in in my paper, one of the things I go over like some of the reasons why you might welcome these structural statutes, which are going to affect the meanings of later past statutes, is is that they are kind of constitution like. They are um, they're generative of. A, a, of kind of a, a category of rules. Mm-hmm. And so long as they're few in number and constitution-like, maybe we can maybe we can tolerate some. It's just that this one, you know, it seems like it caught everyone off guard. And I don't know if this, but at the same time, and I was going to ask you this kind of separately, if this statute weren't around, would there be some kind of deeper constitutional hook for saying that there's a problem with combining the military with uh, civilian office? And and, and if not, and the statute is it, should it, be affor- should it be afforded that kind of constitutional status that would otherwise make us say that the later passed statute really can't overcome it quite so easily unless it says it explicitly?
2: Sure. I mean, so let me take those in order. Um, on the first point, I actually don't think this statute is quite as rare a creature as, as it may seem from just looking at this case. There's not a lot of litigation about the dual office holding ban, but it's actually enforced within the military all the time. Um, So indeed, the DOD has a directive that makes quite clear that service members are prohibited from doing anything or taking any step that might trigger the dual office holding statute. And that in the ordinary case, they can, and we found examples where they have been terminated even after 1983 um, for doing so. So I think this actually is more than just a relic. I actually think it's a rule that's still enforced on a daily basis. The enforcement is just mostly behind the scenes within the military. Um, but, Christian, turn to the, the big question. I mean, it's interesting to think more broadly about civilian control of the military and how, if at all, the Constitution enshrines that. Right. Um, the Commander in Chief clause is obviously, I think, the most important example. Right. That it 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 compels civilian superintendence over the military through the person of the president. There's not much else. Um, in the Constitution that actually formally compels civilian control of the military. I mean, we talk sometimes about the Posse Comitatus Act, that you can't Mm -hmm. use the military for ordinary law enforcement. That's just a clear statement statutory rule. That's a statute Congress passed in 1878 that can be overridden by another statute, right? The rule that the Secretary of Defense um, has to have been retired for at least seven years, the statutory rule, you know, I, I, I think that Civilian control of the military is one of those constitutional norms that is actually principally protected by an array of statutes, including, frankly, this one. I mean, you know, we talk about the military officers serving in the cabinet. Um, there's a reason why you don't often see, right, military officers in the cabinet um, that would violate the dual office holding ban, right? Um, a military officer can only be the director of the CIA or the NSA because Congress has expressly authorized it with an eye toward this same very statute. So mm-hmm. I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm sort of stuck in the middle. I don't think it's quite a clear constitutional rule, but I do think that, it's a, that a statute like 973 reflects a broader set of constitutional norms that we've respected at least since the Civil War, um, if not before then.
1: Well, I think the combined force of, you know, there's not just the Commander-in-Chief Clause, as Christian mentions, there's also, you know, Put that together with the oath and the yep. take care clause. Yep. And, you pu- and those three things together, combined force of those three things seems to me makes it very hard <laughs> to was, get to yeah. a location other than a clear uh and and forceful civilian control of the military it, you, you're not saying you couldn't get there i'm saying it's very much harder
0: i was thinking about a broader norms-based argument that that might even tie into things like the quartering amendment yep. and the thought, and, the, uh, and yeah. then civilian protections like of trial you know trial like protections and and the suspension clause like only in a time of war all of these things which seem to suggest civilian control of civilian
2: life yeah i guess that's i guess that's right but 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 Christian, but I, don't, I I you know even I have a hard time thinking how any of those would compel the same result in these cases.
0: No no no. But they they suggest um in in the way that that I talk about in the submarines thing, right? That in the same way that like you could see the Civil Rights Act yeah. as delivering on a certain kind of constitutional promise.
2: Right. Ashbridge calls these super statutes.
0: Exactly exactly. And and, and so um and so to here, you know, this statute, although it's not, you know, it, it it's not. It's interesting you point out how, how common its its application is in everyday life in the military, but it doesn't have in the public consciousness the same role that the Civil no. Rights Act have, and, and it doesn't go through the processes that he identifies in terms of contestation and erosion. And so, so I have erosion, a question
1: of, from history, which is, um, and I think it's very much provoked by thinking seriously about this broader issue. Um, was there either within his own party or across parties, was there any... Serious discussion uh, in the in the Eisenhower in Eisenhower's first presidential campaign about whether it was simply inadvisable uh, to uh, elect someone who so recently had such a prominent military role uh, to be the the commander in chief. Well, it's Ulysses S. Grant too, right? Yeah, but I'm thinking I'm trying to think of a more uh, uh, like a contemporary that's conflated with the Civil War aftermath and and the like, and and so in, in in sort of modern times.
0: You've got this. I guess we could go to George Washington too, but yeah, (laughs) sure,
2: Um, sure. Yeah, Uh, but we've got this. It's It's the right question, and I don't know the answer. I mean, I know, I know, sort of just from a very rough perusal of the of those sources of that period, um, that there was some discussion about having someone running for president who was so recently atop the military. You know, this is right about the same time that Congress makes the first exception for the Secretary of Defense, right for Secretary Marshall. Um, to serve as, um, as SecDef, even though he was, you know, just recently retired um, from the army. Um, I, I don't, you know, I think one could write, and indeed, maybe I should, um, <laughs> uh, an interesting article about the history of sort of the, how the political branches have implemented civilian control of the military. You know, I don't think it's yeah. a coincidence that the statute at the core of Ortiz and, and the other cases Dalmazi um, dates to 1870. I mean, I think that, you know, Christian mentioned Ulysses S. Grant. I think his administration, for a bunch of different reasons, raised a lot of questions about civilian control of the military, partly because there were so many, you know, military officers looking for work in Washington, um, right, as the army was was paired back after the Civil War. So, right. you know, part of why I find this case so interesting, especially at this moment, um, has nothing at all to do with Guantanamo, right, and with the specific sort of um, foil through which we're having this renewed discussion about civilian control of the military, but rather that you know the Supreme Court really has never had a case um, that, that in which it had to really consider this. Um, well, and this, maybe, this is what's yeah.
0: this is what's important for me, Steve. Right? Yeah. That that like how I view this statute turns a lot on whether I think it it is a statute that encompasses and gives life to. Deeper constitutional norms that otherwise you, otherwise aren't stated anywhere in law, yep. or you know, because if you see this case as involving a kind of gotcha statute, the forgotten statute, <laughs> then I would be inclined to uh, to read the the later past statute as easily overcoming, right? You think of like you know, in terms of conflicts or whatever, easily overcoming this earlier gotcha statute because you know Congress clearly had an intention when it created this system of appointments; it thought a certain thing was going to happen, and maybe we should give effect to that intention, not necessarily because we're intentionalist, but you can under right. many different kinds of interpretation, you might do that. But if you see this statute as something more, as as the kind of linchpin of yeah. the, uh, or at least a linchpin, I don't know if you can have many, but a linchpin of the of, of the separation, then then you would say you would resist that and said, well, even though it's only a statute, we need a clear statement from Congress, which then may force us to wrestle with kind of deeper constitutional structural questions uh, that we can otherwise avoid.
2: It's funny you mention that. I mean, this is exactly what we lead with in our reply brief in Dalmazi. Um, so, so the first of the two cases where we're really raising this before the Supreme Court is called Dalmazi versus the United States. And, you know, our reply brief, which we filed about 10 days ago, uh, I guess a couple of weeks by the time this airs. Um, Our reply brief basically says, you know, the government's opposite brief in opposition, because shockingly the government opposed, sir, um, tries to make this out to be a very sort of mundane, ho hum, fact specific case about an antiquated statute. Um, And we say, listen, you know, don't believe that, right? I mean, this is a case um, about a, you know, really important statute that protects an even more important constitutional principle. um, And the government's efforts to make it seem like it's little, um, you know, should be seen for what they are, um, right? That this is actually about much more than just the Court of Military Commission review and Congress screwing up in 2006 when it created that thing.
0: Right.
1: You know, and I agree that it is a, an extremely important principle. Uh, and I also just think if, you, if you're thinking back about the historical, uh, the people who have occupied the presidency, um, uh, and in marked contrast to the current occupant, uh, you know Jack Kennedy, yep. military history. Uh, yep. uh, President Carter, uh, you know nuclear sub uh, officer. Yep, um, both uh, distinguished distinguished graduate of Annapolis uh, uh, Naval Academy. Uh, yep. You've got you've got a lot of people, and and my guess is that if we look back in the '92 campaign, we would see people slagging on Clinton for not only not having military experience, but for having evaded service in Vietnam. The Kerry campaign in two thousand four tries to make a great deal of his military service in contrast to uh, George W Bush's um uh, and then there's Dukakis in the in the tank <laughs> <Yeah>, i'm <right? laughs> just saying it's 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 interesting that and maybe it's a testament to how important a principle it is that uh if you look at the historical record of presidents and and people who've run to be president um the the military service story is a complicated part of that uh of that record, right? Bob Dole. Uh, and, it, and it even goes to members of Congress, right? Sure. I, I do recall seeing stories about, ah, this is the first wave of congressional elections where we're going to start to see people uh, becoming members of Congress who have uh, served in uh, uh, the post-9-11 Iraq war, well, Joe, and there, uh, and, and et cetera, and et cetera. And
2: there we actually have perhaps the best, right, dual office holding ban in the Constitution, right? But the, there is a congressional incompatibility clause um, sure. That forbids members of Congress from holding other offices in the United States, right? So Senator Graham, for example, actually got in trouble for serving as an Air Force CCA judge while he was in the mm-hmm. Senate. The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces said that was unconstitutional. So you know these issues are very. I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I agree with you guys. I actually think these issues are very present and prevalent both today and historically. Um, and I guess the question is whether you know the justices will agree that this case raises those issues and is not just this hyper-technical fight over statutory interpretation.
0: Well, and especially at this moment, maybe it's, I, I don't know if you want to turn to the broader issues right now, and, and maybe I'll be intentionally provocative here, but at a moment when the um, we see a move toward kind of you know militarizing yeah. a lot of civilian government, right? You know, stocking the administration with generals and things. Like, you know, th- this norm about like not Not having the guys with guns at the same time that they have guns, like hear your case or vote on your issues, like that—that's a big issue. And is that it? Is this like you know? If you think of the pillars of the United States government, which which kind of keep hold hold up the roof against uh, against the what what might otherwise be like a, a force of gravity towards fascism, like that is always, you know, you know the 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 pull toward. You know, grasping for security in insecure times—that's always going to be there because times are generally, you know, because insecurity is lurks everywhere. You yep. know, from yep. time to time it comes up, and so this is a constant erosive force on a on a democracy. And so you need these kinds of pillars, and maybe this is an important
2: one. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Chris, I wouldn't know where on the pantheon of great pillars of constitutional heft to rank civilian control of the military, but it's got to be up there. Um, You know, and I think in this case... And it's it's
0: not, hold on, Steve, and and just like, because we've been using that phrase, civilian control of the military, I think you raise, you know, this case raises a a kind of more interesting, uh, not more interesting, but but a a slightly different issue, which is military non-control over civil life.
2: That's right. That's right. Um, Which which I guess is related, but distinct. Um, And in that regard, I mean, it dovetails with, you know, the other pending Guantanamo military commission case about whether the military commissions can try purely domestic offenses right? I think that's of a piece with this larger phenomenon. Um, You know, we are remarkably in the longest period right now in American history, um, during which the U.S. military has not been called out to do law enforcement at home. Um, It's now been 25 years as of, you know, May 1st of this month. Um, So, you know, I, I think that there is a lot about this moment, some of which is unique to this president and some of which is not. I mean, right, even before November, you know, you had real concerns about the militarization of domestic law, of local law enforcement, um, which I think is not that different from this bucket of issues. So, you know, if that's the sort of swirl surrounding this issue, um, I don't think ours are the cases in which the Supreme Court can really sort of, you know, way in. Um, but I do think that it's an interesting moment to at least have the conversation. And Krishna, and as you say, to talk about these kinds of statutes and whether mm-hmm. there should be, you know, whether these are the kinds of statutes that ought to require the kind of Eskridgean, you know, super clear statement treatment because of the norms they reflect. I, I would have thought the answer was yes. Um, I've been surprised at just how I guess, uninterested and unsympathetic, um, the lower courts have been so far to this claim and to these issues. And so, you know, maybe this is just me, once again, not having a good feel for how much people are concerned about the same things I am.
0: Well, it, you know, it takes, and if you're not someone who, as, as you pointed out earlier, is in the military dealing with this statute on a day-to-day basis, right, or, or at least on a month-to-month basis or something it, it can seem like look how long it took for us to get to what the issue was here yeah. right i mean it's yep. it can seem like a like a like a technical thing it's it's in a statute in order to say what it is you've got to use like three numbers and a letter <laughs> right instead of saying article x yep. right you yep. know and so so it lacks that you know it lacks presence in most people's lives. And it, and it lacks the, uh, it otherwise lacks the heft of a constitutional argument. Um,
2: yeah, I think that's right. And and then the question is, so how do you, I mean, you know, we do make, I mean, I, I, this, is, this is sort of not for nothing, but we do make in our cases a sort of fallback constitutional argument that there are still weird appointments clause and commander-in-chief clause problems with this unique structure. But those are much more case-specific. I mean, that's much more about the unique problem of having you know judges serving simultaneously on these two different courts as opposed to the larger phenomenon of military officers holding civil offices.
1: And we have the you know we have this phrase civilian control of the military but I think Christian really you you really nailed it uh, yep. a few minutes ago when you were saying look what about civilian control of civilians? I mean <laughs> like there's a sense in which the the this we need a phrase to talk about um the 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 way in which and it's it's funny because I'm reminded of some of the um, more florid uh, hysteria in the prior administration uh, that was depicted as, oh, there's going to be this declaration of martial law, right? right? right. So so the, the sort of far-right fringe, when it wanted to reach for a way to describe something that would be their deepest horror, it was exactly this. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was well, the right. military being in control and, of everything. And what
0: distinguishes us from from you know many other regimes that you can that that exist now and that you can imagine, right? Is that the military is not intended to be kind of a discretionary institution, right. which has its own prerogatives, right? And that right. that applies. And one of the ways of achieving that is total civilian control, right? And also preventing it from doing anything in civil life, on yeah. Its not own, just right?
1: discretionary, but sort of swallowing up civilian government. I mean, it's yeah. a, so. I guess it, in a way, it's become fitting that we're having this conversation on the day of yeah. of. Uh, you know, uh, General Noriega's death, right?
2: His, well, and, uh, indeed. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. But guys, I'd also say it's also, listen, it's why the Second Amendment is such a powerful piece of our constitutional tradition, despite all the controversy over it, right? Because the story that libertarians tell about the Second Amendment is that it's there as a wedge against military dominance, right? It's there as a way for the people to rise up against the military. It has run amok. Um, I, there are lots of problems with that story, but that but it's there. It's the same. It's the same, you know, theme um, pervading yeah. all of this.
0: Yeah, uh, and 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 your fear about the military tends to turn on the fear of the current commander in chief.
2: Exactly. Which wow. which, which you know I have more of right now than I did <laughs> six months ago.
0: Do do it, do we have time for me to ask you about something else, or did, is that okay, Joe? Oh, sure. Are you sure? Uh, absolutely. You're not going to be mad at me. Nope. Steve, do you have a second?
2: Let's
0: go. Uh, I wanted to ask you about something that I've seen you mention on Twitter a few times. Uh-oh. And that that's the what the the, the big the big T question, treason. Yeah. Um and, and and I thought it would be helpful for our listeners if you you know, because people what what you see out there now is like if it were proved that that Trump and his um and his campaign colluded with the Russians that that would be treasonous. Um, we even had an early show, right? You know, remember the Elector's show, yep. Joe, where yep. like uh, we we kind of early on cited the the David Corn piece in right. in Mother Jones, and and we're kind of trying to figure out like what should a what should a responsible elector do with that kind of information yeah. information out there? And it turns out, and I was ultimately convinced that impeachment and removal afterwards would probably be the right answer, although it's an enormously difficult question, right? Yep. Because it uh, it raises, and I even cut out a piece of that conversation that I thought was too provocative at the mm. time, right? Which I think I went maybe too far, but but exactly where people are now. So I, I, I want to claim my own prescience with this. Can I do that? <laughs> you can, especially given that it's deleted recording material. That's the ultimate warrant. I swear for... to you, yeah. It's like, it's like uh, you know, on the Nixon tapes, it was all Nixon just <laughs> being brilliant, I'm sure, right? Uh, <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, and but, slur-free. No, no but I, I, I raise this because... Uh, you know, at the time, like you know, what what would have what would an elector do? Like, if you knew that the president had acted or the president elect had acted in a way that was treasonous, or you had reason to expect that it acted in a treasonous way, that would raise serious issues because treason is a word which is in the Constitution, right? Which is anyway, all that aside you don't like this word treason being thrown around. Uh, And Steve, I wanted to give you a chance to explain why and then maybe just explore that for just a minute.
2: Sure. Um, So, you know, I I will say my my dear friend, Secretary and former General Kelly um, did me a solid on the Sunday morning shows this week um, when he basically suggested that people who have been leaking some of the details that have been making it into the stories um, about the White House and Russia and so on Um, are themselves uh, committing a comment that borders on treason. Um, My whole paranoia is that treason becomes diluted as a term and that we Mm -hmm. therefore lose the history of it. Um, The reason why the the founders put treason in the Constitution was because it had been abused by successive uh, English kings for generations as a means of going after political rivals. Um, kind of like a modern les majest uh, law in Thailand, for example, right? That it was treason if you criticized the monarch. It was treason if you worked against the monarch's policies. And so the founder said, "Listen, you know, treason is a really big deal. We're going to define it very specifically as levying war against the United States or giving aid or comfort to her enemies. Um, and we're going to require, you know, two witnesses." testifying in open court to the same overt act, because we don't want treason being appropriated for you know, what really are political crimes. I mean, they're still crimes, but they're not treason, It shouldn't come with this ultimate punishment.
1: So let me ask you a question about, it seems like all the action then is in the word enemy. Yep, I totally agree. Uh, so, w- what, so how do you know what that covers?
2: So I mean I, I don't um, but you know I, the, the best I can how do should one what, think about it the, the best I can do Joe is what is what the Supreme Court has done I mean the Supreme Court has in a series of cases and the lower courts have followed suit said you know enemies for purposes of treason are countries with which we're at war um, so for example there are a couple of circuit level cases from World War II that did not allow treason prosecutions for conduct in aid of Germany that predated the US declaration of war against Germany. Um, Because at the time, as the court said, Germany was not a, quote, statutory enemy, unquote. The harder question, I think, um, is whether that means a declared war, right? We haven't had one since, we haven't declared war since 1942, um, or whether it means a war formally authorized by Congress. So for example, like, would it be enough to be levying war for ISIS against the United States? Um, that to me is the messiest and most interesting of the current treason questions. But we're not at war with Russia. Congress has not authorized war with Russia. Um, there is no sort of unrecognized war going on between the U.S. and Russia. And so I think, so long as that's true, you know, we really risk turn our back on why the founders were so skittish about the term yeah. treason and the offense treason. So go, so go back to the Brezhnev
1: era. Go yeah. back to the Brezhnev era. Uh, or, or something of that nature, Khrushchev. Um, so there's not a hot war, but there is, a, I've heard, a cold war, right? But
2: look at the Rosenbergs, right? I mean, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, right, who were as, you know, um, maligned as spies as anyone in that generation, were never indicted for treason, right? They were indicted and convicted of espionage.
1: Um, yeah. So that so that's the move. You say you don't need treason. You just have the Espionage Act. I think Yeah, like
0: it's Justin, people, yeah I mean, people are searching because the 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 allegations against the Trump campaign. Although they might, you know, th- there is an allegation that violates the Espionage Act. Some of this, but uh, but you wouldn't consider him a spy or people in the campaign a spyness. Well, so people are searching for a word which describes a particular kind of what seems like disloyalty. And let me, let me just throw out a hypo yeah. here, which is not. And which is not, which is alleged. Before but, you do your hypo, yeah.
1: another word people have been using with respect to Russia is you hear them referred to in in news and seen uh, in newsprint uh, constantly referred to as our adversary. Yeah. Right. So it's a way to say it's a way to not use the word enemy, <laughs> right. but to but yeah. to but to reflect the fact that uh, there's a general perception, I think correctly, uh, that Russia's interests and our interests uh, are are widely diverged and being pursued in a very different course, at least until quite recently.
0: Well, it, it it kind of nudges up uncomfortably against two fuzzy boundaries. Like one is the difference between a friend and an enemy, where there's yep. a fuzzy zone of adversary. Yep. The other is this kind of fuzzy zone of interference with democracy itself, right? And so the, the hypo is going to be if, in, if, if the conspiracy, if there were a conspiracy, and it was uh, we will like drop sanctions or do other things which are in your interest, not because we think they are in the U.S. interest, but because you will help me win an election, and you will help me win an election by rigging voting machines. Like if they they actually had changed totals, uh, then it's it's interesting, right? Because it is it is a that it's a what, what is bothers people about that? I think is that it it appears to be an attack on democracy itself, mm-hmm. right? By attacking our system of elections. In order, like, n- unlike a lot of crimes, maybe not even for like a personal corrupt gain, but or, or maybe it is a personal corrupt gain, but by trading off directly United States interests, right? So that's well, I mean, but, we do, I mean, but we do have disloyal. I mean, but we, but we yeah. do have.
2: I mean, we do have criminal statutes about interfering with of elections. Right, of so, course. So, so I guess, but but, I, I, but
0: but Steve, but Steve, I yeah. assume that everything that could be covered under treason with the word treason, also there, there, you know, anybody who would be convicted of treason could probably be convicted of any number of other statutory violations.
2: But so, but so then, then my question is, then why are we wasting all this oxygen? And I don't mean you guys, right? I mean, I mean, why is the commentary right. wasting all this oxygen on a contested and contestable legal term that then opens the door to people putting out and say, no, it's not treason. What are you talking about? Versus well, saying, that, Who that cares raises what that, you call yeah, it.
0: Yeah, that that raises the issue though of whether people are using that in a legal sense or not, and so. Because some a. of
1: what the word captures is, in, in a way that it feels a little frustrating that what you get Capone on is tax evasion. Yeah. It's sort of like, really? I mean, <laughs> well, that doesn't seem to capture Al Capone's life and works. I We're
2: going to get Michael Flynn on failing to register as a foreign agent. We're going to get Jared Kushner on making a materially false statement on his SF-86. I mean, this is, you know, this is the world we live in.
0: Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And and that's the the more interesting part of your critique. I mean, I think you make a solid case that that treason as a as a legal concept should be restricted for, to instances of of uh, where, where there is, you know, where there's an enemy on the other side and not just an adversary. You know, but Further, like it, the way you started this conversation is there's a problem with a society in which people are thrown around the word treason at each other, right? Where right. you kind mm. of weaponize the word treason like they did. Like I remember that word was used all the time. I remember that show 24. Yep. Uh, uh, where people would do things to help other governments. And the word treason was thrown around all the time to describe these kind of political
2: crimes. And then the next time it's used to describe what reporters are doing. And, and, yeah, exactly. that just, exactly. and that's just, and given what happened in Montana, right, and given what happened over the weekend in Kentucky, I mean, I just think this is a road that everyone should be very, very wary about going down.
0: Yeah, that's why, you know, and, and it's it, it's tough because to describe the gravity of what happened, it doesn't have the same gravity to say that what, so suppose that you find out that they actually did conspire to uh, use this information in exchange for like a, um, uh, Positions on Ukraine and and um, sanctions. So suppose all this really happened, and we're not yep. asserting that. But um, uh, then, like you could say, well, there's a there's a there's a crime here that's been committed, and it's conspiracy to violate the Storage Communications Act and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Right? Th- those are two actual crimes. Sure. Where if you knew about it and and you you encouraged uh, violation of those crimes in exchange for some benefit, and you gave them, like all that, and then there could be Espionage Act claims, there could be all kinds of I mean, of there's, also, like, there's also
2: 18 U.S.C. 219, which makes it a felony for anyone holding an office in the United States to carry out work on behalf of a foreign government. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of crimes to describe, what you know, the worst allegations against the current administration. I just think that the more we gravitate toward describing them as treasonous, the harder it is to defend against, you know, Secretary Kelly going on, meet the press and calling right. leakers and calling leakers traitors.
0: But I wonder if, so does the law have a role to play there? Because I think if you if you catalog all of these things, you still, like, if all of these things were true and are proved, it, it, it it's a, just an unbelievable attack on
2: our electoral system. And, yeah, and, 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 the, and the gravity way, and,
0: of it, like, yeah. And Christian,
2: the, the, and Christian the, the legal term that the law creates for all of that stuff is impeachable.
0: Yeah, well, I... <laughs> I you know and it's weird how how that word like the gravity of that word is affected by what we identify as impeachable. Like yeah. that word doesn't to a kid who who came of political age in the in the early 90s and throughout the 90s the word impeachable suddenly seemed well not so grave <laughs> if you were around for the Clinton impeachment, right? right. Um Yeah, although but, although I mean we've had yeah. we've had
2: what we've had, you know, how many successful removals have we had in US history?
0: Yeah, zero, right? Exactly. I mean, of, of the president. Of the president.
1: In a, way, this, in a way, the conversation about treason also relates to, to the prior point about—so um, in a sense, it wasn't a change of topic,
0: Christian—that
1: mm-hmm. uh, that the, the notion of sort of civilian control of civilians, that yep. to the degree that the word treason starts to kind of morph and become this blob that just sort of covers everything I don't like in politics, right. uh, because treason is always going to have with it this flavor of war. Right. Yep. making war on on the United States, or giving aid and comfort to our enemy um that it's it militarizes politics yeah uh, and that's and right. that's that that sort of is a is a um that 's a sloppiness we should be very leery of, right. of participating in on the ground of the
0: prior conversation we were having well that 's why I wanted to raise it because I think you know Steve on Twitter and elsewhere has made the the legal argument and set out the legal argument that this is legally not treason, and then the second part of that has to be there 's a reason. Why the the public should not use this as a as a yep. you know rather than a term of art but a term of politics. This has no place in our in, in our in our kind of political rhetoric, right. absent some evidence that there was an actual you know. And I don't think it's. War.
1: I don't think it's. It, you might say it's somewhat slipshod, but I don't think it's nearly as slipshod an extension to to use the phrase you were using before um, an attack on democracy itself. I mean that right. that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> to me, uh, and, it, and it gets at the problem more directly, right? To say, w- what they're doing is attacking democracy. Um, they're attacking the democratic process. Yeah, you don't need to
2: use the word treason. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, mean I, I, think, I think we should get comfortable with the notion that there are some sins in our political life that are more than just crimes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, whatever else they, 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 they there might be crimes, but that might not be the worst thing you could say about them.
2: I mean, I mean, just to take Michael Flynn, right? What Michael Flynn, what we now know about Michael Flynn in Turkey, is so much more than just a violation of the Foreign Agent Registration Act, right? And yet, all the law can do to describe it is that, right? All the law has for that is, you know, he violated this, you know, procedural statute from 1938. Um, right. We know better. right? We know that there is so much more going on with someone who was a senior transition official, you know, changing policy because he was getting paid to do so by the Turkish government. We just don't have a legal term to describe how nefarious that conduct is.
0: But maybe like Joe is saying, and, and maybe like the earlier conversation indicated, saying that someone violated a statute is, some, is our way of saying legally that something important happened here. Right. I mean, that, that there is this statute which has the effect of separating, uh, we, preventing military control of civilian institutions. So I, it, it it may seem like a technicality and it has a word like 962. What is it, F or something? I, f- I forget which it is, but uh, but that it's actually important. And this goes much.
2: back to your point, right, which is that not all statutes are created equal. That's right. And not That's all right. and not all criminal violations in this space are the same.
0: Yep. Wow. Wow, are, are, <laughs> I don't think we can do much more to that.
2: I was to say on no, that, I'm on that right. uplifting note.
0: <laughs> well, well, we'll have to leave in the air the the fact that,
1: uh, and I can't remember where I've seen some writing about this recently, but but um, it it is odd that the 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 what we were describing before factually is simply the the fact that there are a lot of cabinet level appointees who who are in this military hazy context, right, recently retired or or maybe in the case of the NSA uh, uh, active, Um, there seems to be, on the part of the president who has no military service, uh, uh, this odd fetishization of military service as the sort of truly manly and trustworthy people, right? The people who really should have authority um, in a way that he can sort of be comfortable with in the context of what he's doing
0: in his administration. It it does strike me as odd. It's not chance that Sheriff Clark's uniform is full of things that look like military medals.
2: That's right. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and no, that's right. And there's a larger conversation to have, I, I guess, another day about the dangers of this kind of jingoism, right, especially on the week that we celebrate Memorial Day and the president, you know, sings along to the national anthem at, at Arlington. I mean, this is... Yeah, like there's a, a great a baseball
0: game, but you know, right. I
2: mean, there's a, there's a great, I don't want to make too that, much of that. But. No, but there's, it's just, it's all these little data points. I and mean, there's a great book Diane Mazur wrote a couple of years ago called a more perfect military, where she basically says like, we oh. have all this reverence for the military, but we've actually forgotten how to respect it. Um, and that there's a difference between those two things. Um, yeah. And I think that's, you know, it's a larger phenomenon of which all of these are just, I think, you know, the latest um, flashpoints.
0: I I've had that conversation with one of my best friends who's who served in the military active duty and and this this kind of you know with this particular individual it was like a, a reticence about too much thank you for your service type right you know thing and 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 too little like respect for what it means to send someone into combat or or respect for what they actually did. You know, the the fact that the military is both a job, but also a calling and a duty like it's, you know, all of these things. It's right. Thank you for your service.
2: Thank you for your service. Let's take away your health benefits. Right. I mean, like, you know, there's a lot to say about that. And I think this is part of a much deeper ill in our current political culture that the current administration is just, I think, exacerbating.
0: Well, mm. let me say this. Let me say this. If if um uh if you're not listening to Bobby Chesney and Steve on the National Security Law podcast now with theme music, you're nuts. Like you're just nuts. <laughs> you're nuts. I, I, in, I these, in this day and age, I mean, you've got to be. Now, that listening to this. That
1: that means you could be listening to them and still be nuts. Right? <laughs> you're making a diff, slightly different point. Yeah, Because right. I listen to them, and I often feel that I'm nuts. Yeah, yeah.
0: I can attest to that. Well, yeah. I, listen, yeah.
2: I, I I am one of them. And I am nuts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We are all a little bit nutty these days, and that's that's okay. We can be nutty together. That's one of the, that is one of the <laughs> founding principles of this show. Yes, let's all be a go. little bit nutty together. And uh, but but seriously, it's a great show. And 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 you guys now have like uh, professional mics, and you've got theme music. I mean, it's a real show now, Steve. It's
2: a real show. I, I mean, all we're missing is content.
0: <laughs> no, the content is the content is awesome. And I love it. Like like all great podcasters, you've now run into the situation where you say, ah, let's make a short show. Uh, you think it's going to be 10 minutes and then and, and two and suddenly, hours later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know what um, you're talking about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thanks well, for joining us, Steve. And at some point, we'll have to have you and Bobby back on the show.
2: I would love that. Bob, Bobby is a, Bobby is very in demand, so so good luck with his schedule.
0: Yeah, well, you know, we're going to do it. And at some point, now this is, this is longer range, but I keep talking about Oral ArdCon, this, right. this convention that we, we are going to do, this conference we're going to do, I'm there, which is well, and and we're going to get Bobby to come too because we're going to have a live taping of National Security Law Podcast. Nice this thing. that that's my that's my dream. That's my I, dream.
2: I, I I I know at least one of the people who can help make that
0: happen. I'm just trying to give the listeners something to look forward to if they're thinking, oh my god, it's going to be too long before our next Vlada King. Steve is a is a is a co-host who is always welcome.